I was sitting there listening uh, to the words of the screen, and, and I, I said, you know, praise the Lord who's paid our debt. And I thought about if you ever open up your credit card statement and flip it on the back in the, in the small print, there's a little chart back there that tells you if you pay the minimums, how many years it will take you to exhaust that balance. And most of you will be frightened if you've never read it, because it'll be like 90 years if you just pay 207 a month, right? <laughs> or something like that. But think about that. Uh, your debt, our debt to the Lord, if you pay the minimums, which is just man or woman-based earthly morality, you'll never scratch the surface. You'll still owe that debt when you stand before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And uh, we pray that that would not be your case today. We want to talk to you about a way that you can get that debt paid, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. And so, uh, amen, and uh, a welcome uh, for those of you both joining us uh, through, our, through our live feed, as well as those who are here in person. Let us pray and open up God's word. Um, Father, in the name of Jesus, it is a privilege and an honor, and it is also a humbling thing to think that you would use such a messy and flawed man to share the deep jewels of your word. Would you help me? I am completely enabled to effectively, through my intellect, bridge all the gaps between us and the ancient Near Eastern world. I am likewise totally ineffective, Lord God, in my intellect to properly squeeze together the right vocabulary to give the full strength to the things you want to say. I need your spirit's help. We need your spirit's help, O oh God. And uh, I have full confidence that, Lord God, you'll bring it. You said that your word is good for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, that every one of us would be thoroughly furnished, totally equipped for every good work. I believe that, Lord God. It is, it is a lifelong core conviction. And so, Lord God, with great anticipation, I wait for you to show us uh, those things from your word today. Help us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you're just joining with us, you've already heard that we are in a series called Messy. We look at the messiness of relationships. And what better book to preach a series of messages about messiness than from 1 Corinthians uh, uh, in total, quite a messy church. But why are they so messy? You might think that we're thumbing our nose at them, which suggests that gospel hope is somehow better, but that's not the story. To help you understand why the 1 Corinthian saints are so messy, you need to understand something about uh, how they encounter the gospel. It was the Apostle Paul who spent a year and a half there teaching, and as gospel seeds were being planted amongst Jews and Gentiles, majority Gentiles, and began to grow and blossom, uh, they were being saved. People were coming to know Christ. But coming to know Christ out of what kinds of lifestyles? Imagine for a moment that you and I are also Corinthians. We are Corinthians. Our city has the kind of salacious reputation as that of an Amsterdam or Vegas. The whole world comes to us to unload their mess and to do the most immoral things that they would never want to do in front of their home audiences. Our primary industry is tourism and trade, and we have all kinds of economics coming to our city, but all kinds of people bringing all kinds of impurity. At the center of our city is a temple built to the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of love. And as a part of the temple practice, there are a thousand free prostitutes available. I want you to soak in that for a moment. Free prostitutes, right? So prostitution is already an icky thing or already kind of a messy thing when you, from a morality perspective. But you're talking about not only is it legalized, but it's free. So then here it is. Paul has preached the gospel. The gospel has grown up among us. We're the Corinthians now. Are you ready to wear this? Uh, 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 my, my mom 
my wife, my daughter, my aunt, my grandmother, females in my family, potentially, who have come to know Christ were former temple prostitutes. There were 700,000 people living in Corinth at the time, and it says over a third of them were, were slaves. My uncles, my brother, you, me, some of us, saved from a lifestyle of, of potentially being involved in human trafficking, either as a victim of it or as a villain or perpetuator of it. Your friends and family members actively employed in the trades of either uh, the temple worship or the temple manufacturing and the industries around that emanate from that. This is what's going on in our city. This is the stuff that we got saved from. We didn't, when we came to know Christ, we didn't pack up our bags and move to a more conservative section of town that was more aligned with our views and had better schools that, are, that had agreed with how we wanted to teach our children. No, we stayed. We are there. And the gospel is working on our lives. We were saved out of some of the messiness of mess. Pastor Ryan or I regularly get invited to go to the home of city officials and, and they open back the grill and we know that the meeting there was probably killed in homage to some idol god. But we're going to go to the barbecue. We're often regularly invited into the homes of not strangers, but people who you and I know as blood relatives and co-workers who, who are involved in things that, that you can't even show on HBO at midnight. Only one person in, you got HBO? <laughs> You're the only one that laughed. You don't want that blush, Sister McCabe. <laughs> mm. Amen. Well, uh, nevertheless, Corinth was not a very savory place. As I said to the 9 o'clock audience, it made Las Vegas look like the Vatican City. It was a nasty place. And this is where the gospel is taking root. And people are coming to know Christ. But they're not just coming to know Christ and then gathering together in churches together. They are also trying to do the very thing that we say at Gospel Hope that we are about. So we said as a church, our vision is to be a church that displays the reconciling hope of the gospel. And our mission, the way we will do that, is by making disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. I told the other audience, and I'll tell you too, you might have seen this on our website, heard it in many messages, but you have never seen the choreography that goes with it, right? So we are the church that wants to, wants to make disciples who are growing in the gospel as a family while on mission. And these little hand signals, especially this last one, means that not only are we growing up in him, that is in Christ, but we're also growing together as a family. We're growing into one another, but we're also growing in this third relationship with the world. Well, when you grow in your relationship with the world, it gets messy. And one of the messy aspects of growing in your relationship with the world is that we're often invited into spaces where we have to choose, man, am I going to look conceited today or am I going to compromise my walk with the Lord? Am I, am I going to come off as holier than thou and offend people in the faith? Or am I going to walk out my holiness? I mean, it is quite a tightrope when you have active relationships with people in the world and you're trying to grow in those relationships for the sake of the kingdom. And so Paul is going to help us today navigate those waters. Because th this is Christianity 202. This isn't just tracking through the Ten Commandments and here's a big list of what not to do and a big list of what to do. This is a very fluid series of relationships that we often find ourselves in. And the rules of engagement for growing in our relationship with the world need to be clear. And so I believe that Paul gives us a handful of principles of what to do just in case we are invited to have dinner with sinners. 
You see, if you read the text or you listen to the text that Ryan read for us earlier, uh, Paul sets up this situation where he says, first and foremost, y'all, I do not want you to be caught in idolatry. Flee from idolatry. But then in verse 33, he closes with this statement. No matter what you do, whether it is to, to, to eat or to drink, or I don't want you to offend the Greek, don't offend the Jew, don't offend the church, but in all things, I want you to do what I do, and that is to try to make a way that others can be saved. And so I believe that that's the great call of Scripture. So, so between fleeing from idolatry and trying to follow Paul's lead in helping others come to Christ, we have been given this rubric, I believe, in verses 14 through 33 that should help us understand what to do when we're having dinner with sinners. Because that's where Paul grounds the message. He says, listen, there are things happening in your city that, 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 could, that, that is steeped in idolatry. And you need to know how to navigate in these particular times. And so if you're invited to dinner with sinners or dinner with unbelievers, what do you do if you're disposed to go? And so I believe if we're invited to dinner with sinners that we ought to be going because we are, if we have been made disciples, then we are also called to be disciple makers. We need to be growing our relationship with the world. Well, what do we do? And so when you hear me use this phrase over and over again, dinner with sinners, which is the title of today's message, I want you to think just about dinner with sinners as a place where we often engage with the world. It could be breakfast with the broken, as I think as Jalen told me. You know, it could be, you know, I don't know, it could be lunch with the lascivious, right? You know, it could be, it could be or it could be dinner with sinners. Whatever you do, it could be coffee, Lord God, with those that have no conscience, Whatever you do, there is a way. We, we should be having regular platforms of engagement with people who are outside of Christ if we're the real deal and we're stepping up to the plate to make disciples. And so the Apostle Paul gives us some things to do that uh, if we're having dinner with sinners, then we should, which is the point of today's message, we should live in a way that paves the way for souls to be won. If we're going to have dinner with sinners, we should be living in a way that paves the way for sinners to be one to the Lord. All right? And so we're going to focus the majority of this morning's message on verses 23 through 33. Through verses 23 through 33, I'm going to read them for us, and I want your antennas to go up because there are four things that I believe Paul provides that I'm going to frame into questions. Four things that Paul provides that can help us navigate these potentially messy relationships when we're having dinner or encounters with sinners. You guys ready? Let's read. It says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the market without raising a question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising question on the grounds of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who has informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean for your conscience that, but his. For why should I, why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God with no, give no offense to Jews or to, uh, to, to Greeks 
or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Four principal ideas that I believe are found in this little stretch of text that can help us navigate these potentially messy waters are as follows. I need to be raising some questions about the actions that I take. Number one, does it expedite? Does it expedite? Number two, does it edify? Does it edify? I'm going to unpack these in just a moment. Does it edify? Number three, does it exalt? Does it exalt? And number four, does it evangelize? Does it evangelize? Again, these are the rules of engagement as we grow in our relationship with the world. And there are going to be, sta- there are going to be seasons and times where the rules are not as black and white as a book of Ten Commandments. They're, they're, they're very fluid in nature, but the principle is the same. We're fleeing from idolatry and we're trying to usher people in or facilitate conversions into the kingdom. That's where we're going. That's the, that's the objective premise that we're working toward. So when we talk about does it expedite, I believe that that first question is, is, uh, uh, leaps off the page for us uh, in, in verse 23a. All things are lawful. They're not illegal, right? They're not breaking any laws. All things are lawful. But not all things are helpful. The underlying word there is the word, is, is it, is it, does it expedite? Now, you know what it means to expedite, right? If you're, if you're, you know, Amazon, FedEx, UPS, right? The whole idea of moving something from one place to another as quickly as possible with minimal stops as we can, getting it to people based at the, the priority level that they purchased. Well, we as believers also live a life where our decisions and choices ought to expedite our walk with Christ. It ought to move us forward in our relationship with him. We ought to be gradually becoming more like him with as few shortcuts and blunders as possible. Does this action I'm about to take, does it expedite me in my relationship with the Lord? Am I moving toward him? Am I becoming more like him? Now, what you need to understand is that not only are our lives who are believers on a distinct trajectory of moving toward the Lord, because that's what the Lord guaranteed, all those who were saved will be transformed and conformed to the image of his son. So our lives are set on a trajectory. But even before our lives were on that trajectory, our lives were always on a trajectory. Romans chapter 3 verse 23 says that all have fallen short of the glory of God and have sinned, meaning that every human life has always been on a trajectory. The question is, what trajectory? And so this idea or the picture that is given to us in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, is that someone has shot an arrow aiming at a target, the bullseye being the the will and the glory of God. And it says that all human beings born into this life shoot their best arrow and they fall short. The arrow doesn't have enough juice to hit the bullseye. It falls short of the glory of God. So every life is shooting an arrow. Every life is on some kind of trajectory. And what shapes the arc of that trajectory is my decision-making. My daily, minute, major decisions, they shape the trajectory of my life. And so, but, but I don't have enough strength in my arms, I don't have a good enough bow, and I don't have a, a, a good enough arrow to hit the glory of God without his grace. And so no matter how many degrees I get, no matter how much money I save, no matter how robust my insurance package or what I leave behind for my family, none of it is strong enough to hit the glory of God. No matter how much good I do through my great profession, no matter, no, no matter what humanitarian aid I'm involved, minus the grace of God, my arrow always falls short. And so every life is on a trajectory. But then when we are saved, the Lord changes the trajectory of our lives and still invites us to make decisions that match that trajectory. And so 
Do the decisions that I make before the world help me take my next spiritual step in Christ? Does it expedite my walk in Christ? I should be asking that question. And again, I'm not asking you to, it is clear. Again, this is not Christianity 101. This is 202, which means this is not are you sinning or not. This is are you, are you aiming for the right target? Does this decision move you forward in your relationship with the Lord? Because people are watching, especially if we're still kind of wearing our Corinthian uh, mindsets and costumes, right? The world is watching. People are observing our lives, and we can look at the lives of people also and tell that they're on a certain trajectory. I mean, you just stand out on the sidewalk in a busy city, and you can look at the shoes and the briefcases and the way people are walking. You can tell people are going somewhere versus the people that ain't got nothing to do. You can see the folks that are headed to work versus those that are loitering. You can tell who works from home and who... um, is doing homework. <laughs> I mean, you can look at people's lives and tell. You, you can see the trajectory. You can see based on daily, minute decisions. Our lives are all the, very much the same. And so all of us have a shared trajectory, and I make daily decisions that shape that trajectory. And my choices tell a story of what I am pressing for and what I prize in life. This is the, this is the one. My choices, as the world is watching, tell a story of what I am pressing and exactly what I prize. How do I know that? The Apostle Paul tells all of us in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, not that I have already obtained this or I am already perfect, but I press to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. In other words, the trajectory of my life has been changed. The ownership of my life has been changed. I am actively under new management, and I want my decisions to reflect this new trajectory and this new chance, this new shot that I have been given in Christ. And so as we live, our lives are telling a story. And why is that story necessary? Because as people in the world, we're growing our relationship with the world. As people in the world observe the narrative, they're going to ask questions about why we've chosen that trajectory. Again, remember, stay in context. Stay within the context of the passage you just read. These are people who have been saved from incredibly deeply sinful lifestyles and a city with a horrid reputation. And they are still living up close and personal with those same people, some of which may live at their same address. And they are observing the change in life trajectory. And when people see a a change in life trajectory amongst friends, family members, co-workers that they once knew who also hung outside the temples and threw dice and bought prostitutes or not even free, just, I guess, because you didn't have to buy. You're seeing these lives lived out. And so what happens when, when, when Harold passes by the temple? Hey, man, you coming in the temple tonight? No, but I, I, I got to go home. Why? My life has changed trajectory. Now, you might not say changed trajectory, but something is different about the way he walks by. Something is different about the, the young lady who used to be involved in the trade. Something is different about the person who used to own slaves and keep people in human trafficking. Something is different about the people who had their livelihood and their industries wrapped up in the temple of Aphrodite. They're they're different in their lives, their walk, and their stride. They're not just ignoring their friends for the world. They have an answer for the hope that is within them. And it creates intrigue for Christ. I have been purchased. What do you mean you've been purchased? You a slave? Actually, I am. I'm a slave of Jesus. What? What are you talking about? Now we got gospel opportunity. So, 
my choices tell a story of what I am pressing for and what I prize. Can you imagine the incredible tension on the lives of people that have been saved from lives like that? I'm still trying to prayerfully soak myself in this text because I just don't know that kind of tension. I'm just trying to get there. So, but verse 23b gives us yet another peace that we need. It says, not only all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. But all things are lawful, but not all things build up. This is our second question. Does this action I'm about to take, does it edify? Does it build up? Does it build me up? Because the Bible says that we are his building, the collective body of Christ. And then it says that my body is his temple. So God is in the building business. Everybody's in the building business, actually. And I want you to think about this. When you see a great construction project in your neighborhood or on your way to work, right? And you see, uh, you, know, uh, uh, you know, whether it be Berkshire Hathaway or whoever the, the company is, and you see a sign out there and it doesn't quite tell you what it's going to be, you're always passing by and you're noticing as they lay brick by brick and they cut new driveway and they set up the lawn and they haven't even put the official sign of the business out there yet, you're still trying to discern what that thing's going to be. And as soon as it takes on familiar shape, we're like, what? Yes, that's going to be a Chipotle. Yes, it's going to be a Chick-fil-A. Yes, it's going to be a Trader Joe's. Oh, no, another check cashing place. How are they going to put a gas station right there? Have you not felt that? Well, our lives are the same. So as the Lord, as we build our lives on new foundation, people are watching how the bricks are being placed. Oh, Harold don't come to the temple no more. He said he's part of this thing that Paul and them was talking about. They don't come around this town anymore, but, but let's see how he's building his life. And as they watch Harold, he might have some missteps, but if they watch him over time build this new life brick by brick, you know what happens when something is completely built? The bricks don't bother us. It's what's going to occupy it that does. And so when people see a life that's not just being built on Christian principles, but when they see a life that God is actually taking residence there, this dude is really different from the inside out. This young woman is really different from the inside out. This person is really living a life that is now so, so, that declares that they are sold, bought, I, I, I'm just totally purchased by someone new. And so does it edify? Does it build up? The people of Corinth would have known about great building projects because they had this building at the centerpiece of their city. I would suggest that every city has a temple. It might not be dedicated to Aphrodite. It might be dedicated to uh, uh, black excellence. There might be a temple in the town, like the, the signature idol of a given city might be progressiveness. It might be tourism. It might be fun. Every city that you live in has a signature. It has a motif, something that people say. And so if the people in that city live differently, they know that you're not necessarily bought into that temple. They need to know what temple we are building or what temple is God building with our lives. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your, bo in your bodies. For some of you, that's old hat. But can you, can you imagine if you had been numbered amongst the hundreds of thousands of slaves or people who were being human trafficked in Corinth and you heard those words? that you are now his temple and not, the, not the, the nasty stuff of the temple of Aphrodite. That doesn't occupy you, but the Holy Spirit occupies you. Can you imagine how your knees would knock, how your heart would palpitate, how you would tremble with both excitement and fear and say, oh God, do something different in me. 
Because I know, you know, I know about the temple building business. I know what happens inside temples. I'm your temple. Can you imagine the sheer humility and the honor that it would be for a person who had made their living doing the worst things ever in a temple of an idol God to now be called the temple of the Holy Spirit? Can you imagine the great pride? Does it edify? And can you imagine the encouragement to now build their lives differently? under, the, under the, the weight of this new ownership. Whatever occupies the temple, the building of our lives, it is either a blessing or a burden to the community around us. We're all involved in some kind of building project. Let's take a look at verses 30 through 31. It says, if I partake with thanksgiving. So, 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 so now Paul has already kind of made it past the fact that you've been invited to dinner with sinners. Uh, don't ask any questions. But if they do tell you that it's been sacrificed to an idol God for the sake of their conscience so, you don't, so that you can pave the way for salvation for them, you know, don't eat it. But, but follow carefully then what he says in verses 30 to 31. For if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I gave thanks? Right? So, so, so Paul, here's the picture. Paul is sitting at the table having dinner with sinners. He has given thanks for the meal. And after they get done, you know, saying grace, if you will, somebody goes, what is meat to the God of such and such show is delicious. That's the best pool oxen ever. And you're like this, <laughs> well, I'm not going to be able to eat that, right? So you're sitting there, but then Paul says, but why should I sit here and be hungry and ask them to bring out some Triscuit or some cheese and crackers for me after I've already given thanks? Because he wants to put his liberty on the shelf. He says, I can't, I can't run the risk of them looking at my life and saying, oh, our lives are fundamentally no different. He's on the same trajectory that I am. He's still building the same way that I am. Paul says, no. And so the question that Paul is asking is, listen, so, so give no offense, right? So give no offense, whether it be to the, to, to the Jews or the Greek, but, but, but make sure that what you're doing in all that you do, that it gives glory to God that do all to the glory of God. So the third question is, does it exalt the Father of, of heaven in the eyes of all those who are watching? Does it exalt the Father in the eyes of all those who are in heaven? I would say this, uh, uh, just as a point of application, don't waste the grace. You know, the Apostle Paul talks about having dinner with sinners, and he is, he's already given thanks. They've always said grace. I would say don't waste the grace. I, I, uh, I reflect on how uh, during my years in the business world, when I would uh, sit down at a lunch, I mean, eating was always a part of what we did. It was, a, it was a critical part of relationship building. And here I am sitting at a table of, of, of mixed men and women in my finest suit with my initials and, you know, on whatever on my sleeve. I mean, your boy is looking nice with the square and everything. You know, I come in and, you know what I mean, I'm handling business. And all of a sudden, that moment, just before we get ready to eat, and in my heart and in my soul, we got to give thanks for this, but I don't know their disposition. And I went through all kinds of gyrations to try to, you know, deal with the awkwardness, fake a sneeze. You know, wipe my mouth with a you know, napkin extra long. Dear God, bless this food. Quickly. You know, 0.3 second prayers. You know, all kinds of stuff. You know, like I'm, you know, nursing a migraine. Ooh, yes, Lord. All kinds of stuff. You know what I mean? Go to the bathroom and ask for forgiveness. Dear God, I just ate a full rack of ribs and didn't say nothing to you. Tons of sushi. <laughs> and then one day I was like, mm, forget it. I started, I would, I would give thanks. I took pride in giving thanks for my, for my meal. 
I would just give thanks for, 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 for a meal in front of this mixed company audience. And, 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 and the, Lord, the Lord met me in my prayer and did something super powerful. Because the first time that I did it or start doing it, I, I would just, you know, bow my head and, and people would be like, <laughs> and they would look over and see my head down, you know. And they, would be, and, then, and they would all pause, just froze. And then I would come back up and, they'd be, and we'd just go on right at it. And about the second or third time I did that, someone said, can I ask you, what do you say? And in that particular moment, for that particular prayer, what I said was, Lord, regardless of the awkwardness, would you create an opportunity for me to share the gospel with the lives of these people through something as simple as this, this meal? And when they asked me, when I opened my eyes, I was like, actually, I prayed for you all. And I was able to just, that's my little gospel Uzi, right? Just, just kind of do it right there at the table. And from that point forward, I never I never forsook praying in mixed company. As a matter of fact, I started praying out loud. I said, let's up the awkwardness. <laughs> Let people hear what you're saying. And you know what happened out of that? People said things like this. I'm, um, hey, man, you, you, you talk to God like you know him. You, 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 you talk to God like he listens. You talk to God like he actually answers. And that's a beautiful thing to get those kinds of inquiries. You know why? Because the cornerstone of all real relationship with God is not the beauty of prayer, but it is based on the gospel. So, so, so the reason that I can talk to God like I know him is not because I'm steeped in the traditions of great, uh, you know, great grace givings. It is because I do know him. You are dead right. And so, so, so what, what I want to say to you is this. Don't waste the grace. It's not a waste. It's not a waste, Paul, if you gave thanks and then decided not to take the meal. Because now people have to wonder, what, 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 Paul, why you're not eating? Why you're not eating the, the fresh rack of yak? It was because I, I, I don't participate in that. Participate in what? I don't participate in, in homage to that particular God. Well, oh, really? You used to, right? If it wasn't Paul or somebody else, you used to. I know what we used to, but, but I view this as participation in the idol God. I won't do that. I, my participation is in Christ. I, I, I want to drink, uh, I want to drink a, 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 in salute to him. I want to eat bread to Christ's honor. Say more about that. Or don't say nothing at all. And you know what's good about this, y'all? You know what's good? Is that when we get the gospel on the table, having dinner with sinners, get it on the table and let it do its work. You don't have to work it because the gospel has natural gravity. I asked the previous audience, let's see if we get a better turnout here. Uh, some, don't put your hand up. I guess you can. You probably knew before that anyway. Uh, how many people in the room? How many people in the room knew? You know. You knew, know, whatever. That gravity. Before I ask you, you knew that gravity was 9.8 measures, 9.8 meters per second squared. You knew that. Yep, yep, yep. Guess what? If your hand is down, don't worry about it. Because gravity is still working the same. Even if you didn't know the measure. That's the gospel. You see, the gospel is whether the people at the table knew what it was called or not, the gospel still has gravity. And when you put it out there, it pulls people in whether they like it or not. Gravity, if I, if I jump off the edge of the stage, I don't have to like gravity for it to do its work. It's keeping my feet on the floor. Your bottom's in the seat. Your Bible's in your laps. It does what it does independent of the people that want it done. The gospel has gravity, so be, 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 don't waste
embrace the grace. Introduce it into your conversations with, with unbelievers and outsiders and let the gospel do what it does. It has intrinsic power. It, has, it, it is the power to save. Not your ability to make uh, uh, airtight, logical propositions. And I love logical, airtight propositions. I, I, I love, I, I cherish apologetics. But that's not the power of the gospel. It's just helpful in removing some of the intellectual barriers to belief. But the gospel has its own innate gravity. But not only should we remind, be reminded of this, gratitude, grace, just what we call in our culture saying grace. Showing gratitude to God is the ground floor of glorifying him. It is, it is, it is the ground floor. It is the basement. It is the foundation of showing or of exalting God. And here's how I know this. In Romans chapter 1, there's 30 some odd verses there, and Paul uses over half the chapter to talk about what happened in the lives of people who simply refused to thank God, to be thankful in their hearts, and how their thoughts became darkened, and their wisdom became folly, and God turned them over because they were committed to things that did not honor him. And it all started with lighting one simple wick, the refusal to be thankful when they knew him. When, when God had made himself available and knowable to be thankful. So we as people want to know God. We don't want our thoughts to corrode. Do not, uh, do not uh, uh, waste the grace, the opportunity to just show God gratitude in public settings. Romans chapter 1 verses 19 and following put it this way. For what can be known about God is plain to them. Talking about sinners. What, what, is known to them can, can, uh, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible uh, is clearly perceived, uh, excuse me, for, for his invisible attributes and namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world for those th from the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. And after that, it becomes ugly if you read the rest of Romans chapter 1. But it all started with one simple premise, a refusal to just be thankful. And so how much more for us do we want to be people who leverage the basic beauty of being thankful and showing gratitude to God and thanking him when we have a meal before us, especially when we're in mixed company? Jesus said it this way concerning the gravity of the gospel. Um, pretty much any time Jesus is properly lifted up, he will draw people to himself. He said it over here in John chapter 12, verses 32 through 33. It says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said, to the, he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. So Jesus was obviously giving this early prelude to the fact that he would, be, he would die on the cross. But the simple spiritual principle is true. If we will lift up the death of Jesus, and the only way we can lift it up is not through our jewelry, not through our special crosses and T-shirts. The way we lift up Jesus is we talk about that voluntary, substitutionary, necessary, propitiatory, if you like that kind of words, victorious death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ over sin, death, and the devil. When you lift it up, regardless of what kind of words you use, when you lift up the death of Jesus, he draws people to him because the gospel has gravity. And so, final point is this, verse 33, the Apostle Paul says, just as I 
try to please everyone in everything that I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Jesus, he, Paul says he's trying to pave the way for souls to be won. And everything that I do, I want to glorify the Father. So he wants to make sure that the things, they expedite my walk with the Lord, they edify me and is being built up as a temple, they exalt the Father who is in heaven while others are watching. But does it, does this thing that I'm doing, this, these choices that I'm making and the way that I'm engaging with the world, does it evangelize my neighbor? One of the beautiful things that I love about the ministry of Jesus is watching the critiques of Jesus. You know, when Jesus was, uh, 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 you know, on earth and, you know, as his ministry was, his earthly ministry was drawn to a close, he would often be uh, chided and, 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 and uh, critiqued for doing many things. Here's some of them. Some of them are true and others are not, but here it is. Jesus was branded as an insurrectionist. That's said Jesus was trying to build up a crew of people that are going to no longer respond to the, to the earthly kings. He's trying to be a king himself. He's trying to start a revolt. They called him an insurrectionist. But Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth. Y'all don't even know what, we talk, what y'all talking about. A second, a second accusation of Jesus was that he was a blasphemer. This man ain't even 40 years old or whatever. And he's talking about before Abraham was, I am. He makes himself out to be, you know, uh, on the same plateau with God. What is this? Another critique of Jesus was that he worked on the Sabbath day, just constantly healing folks. And Jesus says, well, the Sabbath was made, was the Sabbath made for man or was man made for the Sabbath? Another critique of Jesus was this, that he said uh, he said he was going to tear down the temple. This man, this fellow said he was going to tear down the temple. Y'all remember that? If you read, you know, leading up to his crucifixion, he's going to tear down the temple because he said this temple of my body, right, will be torn down and then in three days I'll raise it back up. He was talking about the temple of his body. But the one that I like, which is so classic, is this. Jesus, he'd be sitting down at the table. Number five, Jesus, he eats with sinners. He always got Matthew and him and these other tax collectors at the crib. Or he at their crib. Or he going to their barbecues. Meeting them with coffee. Jesus was the original when it came to having dinner with sinners. Jesus had dinner with sinners. As a matter of fact, when people walked up and said, man, why you have dinner with sinners? Those that are well don't need a physician, but those that are sick, they do. So Jesus was intentional about engaging with the world. Jesus is the original pioneer of dinner with sinners. Paul ain't just making this up. Pastor Ron isn't just making this up. Jesus did it. I would go back to say that God did it in the Old Testament when he chose the people for himself who had nothing to bring to the table. He told them that the death plague would pass over and they should be in their homes with the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and they should sit down and have dinner. They were sinners. They had no right to the kingdom and right to the throne other than God's grace. God started this tradition of having dinner with sinners because his original people were exactly that when he bought them. And then Jesus Christ sat down at, at tables and, and, and picnic stuff and having, having dinner with sinners. And then he did it one more ultimate time when he sat down during the Passover, the Last Supper, as we all know, this iconic feast. And Jesus, after he broke bread and gave it to his disciples, he says, yes, what? I'm not going to drink of the fruit of this vine with you again until I do it in the, in the kingdom of, of heaven with my father. So then there's this great banquet feast that we're all invited to. God specializes in having dinner with sinners. Why not us? Why not us? And so, ladies and gentlemen, the gospel is exactly that. Because you can't get an invite unless you respond to the gospel. You don't have to have a special coat. You don't have to have a ticket. You don't have to have a special outfit or shoes. You don't have to bring cups, plates, paperware, meat sides, chips. You don't have to bring any of that. He just says, come. The gospel is an invite to you and I. Dinner with sinners. God did it first. And now he's asking us for those that have fellowship with him, that have communed with him, that have had a chance to sit at his table and to know him in this deep and wonderful way. He says, will you do the same? Will you go out and have dinner with sinners? And the invite is this. It ain't just an invite to your house. The invite is, 
Will you raise up the gospel? Will you exalt the Father? Will you do it? Will you make some decisions where you silence maybe some of your own preferences if they prove to be a stumbling block for others? Will you and I have intentional engaging fellowship with sinners, unbelievers, and do so in a way that paves the way for them to be one to Christ? So I pray and I close with this one very basic application. Would you this week have dinner with a sinner. And if you don't do anything to move the conversation forward other than just audibly say grace, man, can I just, just give thanks for this meal before we do it? Oh, yeah. It's going to be kind of tough if you have coffee, though, so you better buy like a hot dog or something because I never seen anybody bless coffee. But, you know, whatever you do, can we have an intentional platform of engagement with people that don't know Jesus? And can we set the stage with not only our hospitality, but with some intentional exaltation of the Father so that the gravity of the gospel can do its work. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are a messy people. Messy people. Your prophet Jeremiah said that my heart, my heart is desperately wicked above all things and that uh, rhetorically asked the question, who can know it? And I can't even know it. I don't even know the depths of my messiness, but you do. And you still sent your son to die for us. Lord God, I ask that we would be great stewards of the gospel, that we would open up our table, spaces of intentional fellowship with those who are outside of you. And Lord God, we would lift you up. We would move towards your son. We would, we would be built up. We would, we would watch your Holy Spirit work wonders in our lives as we share the great truths of the gospel with those who don't know it. Help us, oh God, as Gospel Church to grow constantly in our relationship with the world, but in a way that causes them to be one to you. It is in Jesus' name that we pray, amen.